Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. We've got loads to get through on this week's show. West Indies have announced their squad for the upcoming England series. James Anderson has broken his silence on his axing from the Test squad. We'll be previewing the Women's World Cup that starts in early March. We've got women's cricket journalist and historian Raf Nicholson with us to do that. We've got an interview with Ben Duckett about his winter, one that saw him leave the PSL early, citing bubble fatigue. Ireland have qualified for the T20 World Cup. India have dropped three of their test stalwarts. New Zealand have thumped South Africa. There's a brilliant BPL final and much, much more. There is also a new issue of Wisdom Cricket Monthly out today. With me to attempt to get through all of that this morning is the editor-in-chief of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, Phil Walker, the magazine editor of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, Joe Harmon, and the managing editor of Wisdom.com, Ben Gardner. Um, Let's get the England men's news out of the way bright and early. Uh, yesterday, Joe Root spoke to the press about his intention to bat at number three in West Indies. He averages 38 at number three and 51 at number four over the course of his career. He said, I've expressed in the past that I prefer batting at four, but I'm ready to take on three now. I think it's the right fit for this team to go and bat slightly higher up. And if we do lose an early wicket, support the openers, show a bit of leadership and responsibility and take the game on. Hopefully lay a bit of a platform to bat around. Joe, that that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Though the numbers might argue otherwise. Um, Yeah, there's certainly logic behind it. And and Root talks about that being the best place to for the rest of the team for him to bat. And I think people have felt that way for a while. The, the, the concern is that this is one thing that was working in amongst the side that was completely sort of dysfunctional. So do you risk ruining that and everything else falling apart around it? First of all, it's going to be very hard for him to maintain his form because it is stupendously good. So we can probably expect some kind of drop-off anyway. That wouldn't necessarily mean it's a bad call. Um, but if there's any type of slump whatsoever, I think people will be quickly questioning, why have you changed that? one thing that actually was was working for him was working for the team um i would have i would have been tempted to put stokes at three uh 
admittedly his form has not been great recently, but I think at this point in his career, it would be a, a good challenge for him to potentially reignite him. Get, he's he's always responded well to new challenges. And I think it's probably time to be honest and say he's not going to be a genuine rounder from this point. I don't think his body is going to allow him to do that. Uh, hopefully he can still bowl a fair bit and still have match-defining spells, but I don't think he's going to just get through stacks of overs. So it felt like a good time for me to give him a give him a run at number three. Uh, that being said, I can see why they've done it, but there is a risk that it blows up in their face and and we're left wondering yeah, why they've shifted the one bloke who was, who was doing his job. I guess it's going to be interesting how England and we, the media and fans, etc., measure success in this move. Like, if Root's average does drop, that could, from a team point of view, be a price worth paying if it does mean... I mean, because in, in a way, a, a number three averaging 40 or 40 five or whatever could be more valuable than a number four averaging 50 because it then makes it that much easier for the players who come in after that if that does happen uh, and England also with the players they've got they do have quite a lot of middle order options a lot of whom even actually number four looks maybe slightly high but uh, if it does allow those guys to kind of come in with some sort of platform that could be something that works for the team even if it is comes at a slight personal cost to root, I guess. Mm. Phil, I was going to ask that then the next question is who bats at four? There, there are no obvious candidates. Pope and Lawrence both do it for their counties, but both of them are, well, I guess Pope's not that inexperienced at test level, but he struggled recently at six. Stokes batted at five in the Ashes, but had a poor series. Um, who would you like to see four with root at three? Probably Stokes. I don't massively fancy him at three. Uh, I far prefer root there at three. I just think root has a more rounded technique than Stokes. And I think... Stokes will understand his requirements more easily in that slot at four or five uh, than going in there at three. Root has the perfect game for three, and I know that the statistics suggest that he scores a few more at four, but I don't think we need to worry too much about that, really. Um, and I think I think it's quite an astute point by Ben that perhaps there needs to be a slight trade-off if it means that it buttresses what comes after Root. Um, realistically, he's probably not going to be averaging 60-odd for the next two or three years of his test career because what we've just seen in the last 12 months has been extraordinary. So I don't think we need to worry too much about the Root's form suddenly falling off a cliff as a consequence of batting three. I don't personally see it as likely. Uh, there's a very strong case to mix Stokes and Root up and put in a bolter in between Lawrence, it appears like almost by accident he's the next one in, so he might feature in the West Indies. Although it's it's a moot point how how much faith they really do have in him, considering he didn't play a didn't hit a ball in Australia, despite the fact that no one could score any runs. Uh, I think on balance the best option is to is to have Stokes in there, and obviously Bearstow will feature whether it's with the gloves or just as, as with the bat, probably at six. And then you can squeeze in your so-called Tyro kid, you know, whoever that might be in at five. And I think that's probably the way that they'll go. And it's probably the way that I would go myself overall. I think Stokes at four becomes the sort of fulcrum of the middle order. I think he's, I mean, there's nobody else to do it. Stokes is a dream at six. He's a dream at six. And he's good at four, good at five as well. Um, four might be a wee bit high for him, but there's nobody else. Yeah, I kind of wonder that if you... Bump Stokes up in the order. He just bats with more responsibility. I think in Australia, it, it wasn't necessarily that he was hitting the ball badly or totally out of rhythm. Sometimes his just shot selection was 
pretty poor right. given and, and this, is, this, this is why, for what it's worth, I would be hesitant to have considered him at three because he needs to play more on instinct. And what you saw in Australia was him second-guessing himself quite a lot. And he wasn't sure whether to stick or twist a lot of the time. And I think, I think that's mainly a consequence of always feeling like it's up to you because the top order has been blown away and all of that. And I think if he were to bat three, I think it would be an exten- extension of that confusion in how to go about your innings. Um, that's why I say he's a dream at six because there's no ambiguity to how you bat at six. You're either trying to, you know, you're either trying to add some quality on top of a, of a of a good top order or you're trying to turn an innings around and he is the perfect player for that uh, but as I say the paucity of other options means that I think four will probably be where he ends up I think it's interesting to look at that with Stokes uh, in the context of what people often say they say it fairly about Butler that he struggles to play kind of like a normal test innings and to know how he wants to go out when there's sort of like a, a blank canvas in front of him and lots of different ways you could approach it. And I think Stokes actually had that same issue kind of through his career. If you look after that, after his comeback after Bristol, uh, he went through probably about a year where he batted in basically a completely different way. He was just blocking the ball, like basically for hours and then made a couple of really, really slow 50s, but wasn't scoring heavily because he was batting so defensively. And then kind of had that peak, but it wasn't actually very long in retrospect of just about a year when he really had kind of, cracked it but since again he's kind of almost gone the other way and he's again because he is so talented uh, it is almost as if he doesn't know whether he should be you know playing himself in or if he has enough time to do that or if he should be counter-attacking and taking the attack back to the other team and if he can get that sorted then he can kind of bat anywhere but that has been a barrier for quite a while for him I suppose. Phil can't you sort of flip what you've said on on its head and say well if he's coming in at three then he can he can dictate the tempo of the game. He can dictate the, the the tone of the game rather than coming in when it feels like England are already half beat. Yeah, but realistically, if you're going to go out in Test cricket and you're already ten for one, and the ball's doing a load, do you want your most destructive, game changing player to be batting at three uh, when realistically the first two hours of a Test match innings belong to the bowlers at least the first two hours, and it would be he'd be compelled to play in a certain way. It's not like Ponting going out there and you're already 70 for one and the sun's out and the, the lacquer's off the ball because it only swings for 10 overs. You're talking about playing cricket in England, test cricket in England, when you're opening batsmen, we don't even know they're going to be and invariably they're going to be struggling because that's just the nature of the beast. And I personally wouldn't want Stokes in that position because he is the one player who changes the direction of a game. You don't change the direction of a game at number three, you set a game up at number three. Yeah, I yeah, I don't disagree with any of that, but I just think we still feel, even though he's done some amazing things, I feel like we've still only kind of scratched the surface of what Stokes could be as a test batter. Um, and You see, I'm not sure I agree with that. No? I think I think what, what Stokes is now is what Stokes will always be. He's not, he's not a player that is going to average 50 Whatever number he bats, for my for my money, he's not going to average forty five fifty for from here on in, whether he bats three, four, five, or six. But what I think he is is obviously you know a garlanded, game changing player of amazing moments, and and I think that's that's where Stokes will be. I've, but he had. I, I, I wondered a couple of years. I, I know where you're coming from, and I wondered two or three years ago if he could begin to become that because player. he was finding that consistent. That's what I was going to say. That he did have that consistency two or three years ago, where he just scored runs regularly all the time went to India scored runs scored runs at home and I feel like you know that that feels a very long way away from the Stokes that we saw in Australia but 
and I don't disagree that in you know in, in a dream lineup, Stokes absolutely about six, maybe five. But I feel like England really need to start getting the best out of their best players, and why not have a look? I, you know, there's there's no there's no guarantees clearly, but this feels like quite a good series to have a have a run at it. If it doesn't work, then slip them da- back down to the middle order. But I think for me, the conversation is quite a bit different depending on how he goes in this series because of just how poor his form looked in Australia. I mean, it's completely understandable that he would be out of form. But I think when a player is in the kind of form that Stokes is in, to then ask them to go and bat at number three is quite a big ask. Whereas actually, if he ends up, you know, getting a couple of quick 80s or 100 or something in this series and he's back to being close to the Stokes we know he kind of can be, then I think him at three becomes a more realistic option for the summer and onwards. But I think if, if that was happening now, I think that would be uh, just not the right time for it. But in a few months' time when England uh, have a new head coach and who knows how he want the, wants the team to progress, I can see the Stokes at three conversation coming back up again, I suppose. Yeah. Mm. Well, he's not banging three anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, we've done 10 minutes on a moot point. <laughs> but what is more interesting is what happens to Root really at three. Um, and th- th- there is obviously a concern that he is your best player and there is more jeopardy at three than there is at four. That's why he's batted four. So there is a concern there. Uh, but... As he said himself, I mean, he's looked at the landscape. He's looked at what's work, what he has surrounding him. And he's recognised that, unfortunately, the, the only really pragmatic decision, as he sees it, and I tend to agree with it, is that he's got to go in there in the danger spot. Yeah, and it's interesting that he, he, he said that was a display of leadership in doing so. And England have been in this weird situation at the moment where positions four, five, six, seven have been weirdly settled, even though they've been doing really, really badly, and that... The, their weakest position has been where they've been looking for new players to come in. And, and that's been the case for quite a long time. They've kind of permanently been looking for another opener and another number three. I, I reckon Strauss um, would have nodded quite vociferously as well, just as Bayliss was on at root in his in his shell, like, you know, for two years, look, you know, you've got a back three. In this lot, you've got a back three. I, I wonder whether having watched Lambertshane for the last couple of months as well has, has sort of led him that direction as well. England so often got that, uh, got that early wicket and then, you know, an hour and a half later, they're still one down. Lambertshane quite often was scored, scoring almost run a ball and then it feels like the kind of game's gone away from you. I mean, and Root is perfectly set up to play that role. Um, can yeah, go I mean, on and score the big, big hundreds. Sorry, I didn't want to talk over you. But yeah, you're bang on there and the two outstanding current Test match players both bat three in Williamson and um and Labashane. so so it's not like this has become a kind of poison chalice role you know and it, it's obviously easier to bat down the order but you can still excel uh what will be interesting with Rue is what we saw in Australia that that kind of compulsion that he now has to run it down a third man because he scored a million white ball runs doing exactly that got him into trouble in Australia with that extra pace and bounce um if you are batting three, then invariably you're going to be in at least six minutes earlier than if you're batting four playing for England. Uh, and what you saw with Labashane was this magnificence outside off stump, you know. Uh, and Root will need to take a little bit from that, I think. Root's urging is to get bat on ball mm. all times. It's weirdly stubborn, I think. Root? Yeah. Yeah, but he will also recognise that, that a pattern emerged in Australia. You can't keep nicking off the third slip with half a bat. And it's happened when he was playing in Australia, against Australia in England as well. A number of times he, he was out in that kind of channel, pushing, looking for runs. Labashain would never play that shot. Williamson would rarely play that kind of shot either. If he does, he'd play it with such soft hands that it would go down. Um, 
look, he's great. He's he's that he's our one, you know, banker. Uh, hopefully, it can work because it's uh, going to happen. Yeah, Ben. This week, James Anderson has he's broken his silence on on his dropping from the Test squad. Um, he said on the tell in his podcast, "I'm praying that this isn't the end. I've got one more go at digging deep. I've got a lot left to offer." I've still got the hunger and the passion to play. It was a shock and a disappointment to get that call, but having processed it, it's important. I try to focus on stuff I can control, and that's showing people what I can do with a ball in my hand. Um, what do you make of that? I mean, uh, spare a thought of a county batsman this year. I think Anderson averages something like eight with the ball over the last two or three years. Yeah, it's interesting because the content of his response is in a way not that different to Broad's response, but it's just the tone and how he kind of says it and phrases it that makes it just come across quite a lot more, like uh, it's quite a lot easier to accept and to, you know, it does, Get behind it's, it. it's not said in yeah. a way to rile people up. It just feels quite like sensible. And, you, and you, in a way you agree with the stuff that Broad is saying, but you also agree with the stuff that Anderson is saying, but also like feel maybe more sympathy. Um, it's, it is a tricky thing because uh, Anderson obviously did bowl Brilliantly, in Australia, was talked loads about Broad and Anderson. But the uncomfortable thing is that Anderson is older, but still in England's best eleven in a way that Broad arguably isn't. So I guess it's and it's interesting that they still see themselves as such a pair. You know, they they always reference how much they've been texting each other and that sort of thing. When actually, like it might well be that England have to choose to split them up when it comes forward. But yeah, I mean, sensible response. I had to have at some point that you had to say something, I guess. And, uh... um, West Indies have announced a 13-man squad for the first test of that series. John Campbell has earned a recall and there's a spot for uncapped quick. Anderson Phillip, who averages 20 with the ball in first-class cricket. Um, across the two squads, only Nakuma Bonner and Joe Root average more than 37 in test cricket, so it could be a very low-scoring oh, series. Quick games. Yeah, and, and looking at... Um, I've made this point in the podcast before, but this West Indies batting lineup is weaker than the ones that England have faced in recent years in, in the Caribbean. And I think a lot of this series will rest on how some of the guys we've not actually seen that England fans and viewers haven't seen that much of. We haven't really seen much Bonner. Shamar Brooks has got a reasonable record as well. We've not seen a huge amount of him. Mayers as well. I'm, yeah. yeah, looking forward. To, I mean, he, he looked in great touch in the T20s. He did, for, yeah. For, for what that's worth. I mean, um, probably nothing. Shamar Brooks played well against England in 2020 as well, didn't yeah. he, in that series. And they do, they do I mean... They're both very fallible batting lineups, but they do tend to just raise their game against England. England like, specialist Jermaine Blackwood exactly. is vice captain. Yeah, and, and it could just take a few sort of punchy 80 odds to really turn and decide the series because of how fallible the two sides are and how good the two bowling lines are. And also, are, like so. Anderson in particular has like a very good record in the Caribbean, and England obviously don't have him, and that's putting a lot on. Uh, you'd expect one of Saqib, Mahmood or Matt Fisher to play at some point in the series. You're expecting quite a lot from them. West Indies bowling attack, they've not got Shannon Gabriel, but still really strong. Kemal Roach, um, Jason Holder. Is Gabriel out for the series or just I'm the first not, test? They've only released a squad for the first test, okay. so I'm not sure. So Jason Holder, Kemal Roach and Jaden Seals, as well as Alzari Joseph. That is a very strong attack. Could be a very low-scoring series. We'll do a proper preview of the series on next week's show, where we'll be joined by Carlos Brathwaite, which should be fun. Oy, yeah, yeah. Um, the Women's World Cup kicks off very soon in New Zealand. It's an eight-team tournament that pretty much follows the structure of the Men's World Cup in 2019. Everyone plays everyone once in a league phase, and then the top four sides qualify for the semi-finals. England are famously the defending champions. Uh, will they retain their crown? I spoke to Raf Nicholson to hear about their chances. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewellery from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. 
Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, Raf. Great to have you on the show. Um, England won the 2017 World Cup five years on. How do you rate their chances of retaining their crown? I wish I could be more positive. Um, they've definitely got a good shot, so that's a positive thing to say. Um, but given their recent performance in the Ashes and especially in the ODI leg of the Ashes, um, it just feels like it's going to be a real uphill struggle for them to come back from that. I guess kind of psychologically as much as anything else, because they really did look totally mentally shot in the last couple of Ashes ODIs. Um, they just totally kind of subsided. Um, and that's that's really difficult. Um, they've just kind of been through this, this quarantine in New Zealand and that will have been very much on their minds going through the quarantine. Um, and now they're kind of coming out the other side and their first World Cup fixture is against Australia. So it's just going to feel like a continuation of the Ashes battering. And, and I am a little bit concerned about it. Uh, that that World Cup win in 2017 was for a lot of cricket fans their first experience of like major experience of watching women's cricket, watching a full tournament of women's cricket. So just kind of like a bit of background and context. Were, were England expected to win that tournament? No, I don't think they were. Um, in fact, I completely remember that I tipped New Zealand to win, um, who didn't even make it to the semi-final stage. So I think that in some ways, um, the actual outcome was quite a shock for a lot of people. Um, probably not somebody like Heather Knight. I'm sure that she would say, yeah, we were expecting to win. But it was kind of, it was very early, early in the Mark Robinson reign, I think. Um, and kind of a year previously, he'd done something very controversial. He sort of axed Charlotte Edwards as captain um, and from the team entirely. Um, and, and she was there leading run scorer at the time um, and it felt like the 2017 World Cup was happening at a point in time where it was a bit too soon for that group of England players um, and that actually maybe if it had been 12 months afterwards they would have had a better chance so I do think that to some extent in 2017 they kind of defied the odds and they really played a lot better than a lot of people were expecting them to. Who knows that might happen this time around as well. I wanted to ask you about the side balance um, with, with Nat Siever in the top five as a as a frontline batter and a frontline bowler gives England different options really they can play an extra batter with someone like Danny White at seven or they have another bowling all-rounder in the side uh, what do you a what do you think they will do and b what do you think they should do I think that in the first Ashes ODI, we saw the lineup that they're likely to play in the World Cup. That's likely to be um, their kind of premier lineup, um, and that so that would be um, with, well, the the um, question of who's going to open is is um, a, a one for discussion, I think. Um, but one opener plus Tammy Beaumont, um, then Heather Knight, Nat Siver, Amy Jones, Sophia Dunkley, um, probably Danny Wyatt, then coming in underneath Dunks, um, and then. Um, quite a seam-heavy um, bowling lineup, I'd say, with just one frontline spinner, I think is likely to be um, what they're going to go for. So they'll have Sophie Eccleston. Um, and then I think that they're probably likely to consider Catherine Brunt, Anja Shrobsoe and Kate Cross as still um, their best seam options, um, with obviously, as you say, Nat Siver offering that all-round option. Um, so that's quite an interesting side because it's quite seam-heavy. Mm. Um, I guess potentially that suits New Zealand conditions, um, but I think that it's partly been forced upon them by the fact that they've been seeking somebody to kind of play the almost like the Ash Gardner role, a kind of off-spinning all-rounder over the last 18 months, two years. And they haven't found somebody who they think can kind of settle and do that role reliably. 
Um, so they obviously had, to, they were trying Sarah Glenn at it um, and she's not even in the squads. Um, they they sort of tried Maddie Villiers at it. Um, she's only in the squad as a reserve. Um, and now Charlie Dean is kind of the latest player who they're sort of trying in it a bit. And I think that she will make an appearance in the World Cup, but I don't know whether she's in their first choice 11, to be honest. Um, so I think it'll be interesting to see how they get on with that, but that's what I think they're going to go with. What do you make of the exclusion of Sarah Glenn? She's one of the more notable absentees from the squad, I guess. She pulled out of uh, being a reserve at the tournament, but she wasn't included in the initial squad. She's done pretty well for England when she has played in ODI cricket. She's played a lot of T20 cricket for England. Um, so, yeah, what do you make of her exclusion? Well, I wonder whether they see her as stronger in the T20 format than in the ODI format. Um, she certainly played more T20s for England ODIs, I think. Um, I guess that maybe to some extent they they feel that um, because she doesn't spin the ball very much um, so and, and she's perhaps been found out a little bit because of that lack of variations more recently against Australia, for example. Um, so I wasn't necessarily massively surprised. Um, and the other thing is that I think that they partly wanted her as somebody who could kind of pinch hit maybe, um, obviously, which is more of a role that you see in T20, um, but somebody who could bat a bit further up the order. But she's never really been given that opportunity either. Um, There was a kind of hint in 2020 against West Indies that they were going to open with her in one of those T20s and and that never happened. So I think she's been a little bit unlucky there with not getting to um, show what she can do. with um, And that's kind of left her out in the cold to some extent. Um, you mentioned earlier that there's a there's a bit of debate over who will open the batting with Tammy Beaumont. Um, Emma Lamb made her ODI debut at the back end of the Ashes. She's literally not scored a run yet in international cricket. Laura, Lauren Winfield-Hill has, hasn't scored an ODI 50 since before the last World Cup. Do you think England should have given more openers or more batters in general games going into the World Cup? Because here we are at a World Cup now and there aren't that many options that you can be that confident in. Yeah, I think they've put themselves in a really awkward position, actually, um, with only giving Emma Lamb that one game in the Ashes ahead of the World Cup to kind of try her out. And then, to be honest, she got she got out to what I thought was quite a good ball. I think she was really unlucky um, and it was going to be really difficult for her to succeed under those circumstances. Um, she's had a couple of outings in international cricket where she's just not really had a chance. Um, the first time was um, in, in our summer last season and she did bat, but she didn't get to face a ball. Um, and then, you know, you come out and you face a really excellent delivery from Elise Perry and what can you do? Um, so I think that it would be really unfortunate if they now say, oh, well, we're dropping you and... Um, yeah, we don't think that you can cut it as an open in international cricket because she hasn't been given enough of an opportunity. On the other hand, you're going into a really big tournament and you're defending champions and you're putting loads of pressure under her if you open the batting with her. So I, I don't, it's not a very enviable position for them to be in at this stage. Um, and I think that really, you know, arguably they persisted with Lauren Winfield Hill a bit too long. To, to an outsider, they really have backed Lauren Winfield Hill for a really long time. And and in, in small moments, you can you can see why. She was hitting the ball really well against India at the start of the 2021 summer, for instance. Um, but is there anyone who's not in this squad for the World Cup that you think England might have had a look at in the four or five years approaching the World Cup? Somebody like Eve Jones, I think, has been really lucky, not uh, sorry, really unlucky not to get a look in at international level. Um, she's consistently scored a lot of runs in domestic cricket. She opens in domestic cricket and she also offers that left hand option, which England have been so lacking since Lydia Greenway retired. Um, so for all of those reasons, I think that it would have been really good to see her get 
get a tryout and opening up at the top of the order. I think that um, persisting with Lauren Winfield Hill, it speaks to both the strength and the weakness of Heather Knight as captain. She's incredibly loyal to her players. Um, and if she thinks that you're going to come good, then she will stick with you and, and she will give you that loyalty as captain. Um, but on the other hand, that does sometimes lead to these situations where from the outside, it looks a bit strange to have persisted for so long with somebody who just isn't scoring those runs when there are other options available like Emma Lamb and like Eve Jones. And just finally, Australia's recent record is just absurd. Can you see anyone challenging them? Well, I hate to put the mockers on them, but I'm going to say New Zealand again. Um, I seem to put the mockers on them in 2017. Um, But I think that they're performing so well in their current series against India. Now, India would be a team that you would think would be challenging for this World Cup. Um, And they were the ones who ultimately beat Australia's winning streak, record-breaking winning streak last year um, in ODI cricket. Um, But India are really struggling out in New Zealand at the moment. As we speak, they're 4-0 down in a five-match ODI series. And New Zealand are just kind of... um, on fire, it seems. Um, they've got Susie Bates back to excellent form. They've got Amelia Kerr, who's just hit a century. Um, they've got a kind of resurgent middle order. Um, and I think that they are going to be really strong on home soil. And they've obviously got this massive incentive to do well at home as well. Um, having said that, I, I think it is difficult to see anyone getting past Australia. Um, but that's just such a boring, predictable result. So let's hope for something else. No, I'm, I'm glad you said New Zealand because that... that... That ODI series is really interesting at the moment. I mean, a few eyebrows are raised when Lee Kasprick wasn't including the squad, but they're obviously doing fine at the moment. I mean, just, just I said finally before, but one final question. Um, Amelia Kerr scoring these runs, that's a complete game changer, isn't it? Having, I mean, her, she's been well known for her legs for a long time, but I don't think people expected her to score this kind of runs. I mean, she's not that, not only got that 100, but she's hit a few 60. I think she hit 68 off 33 the other day. So like that, that could genuinely be a game changer going into the tournament. Yeah, absolutely. And people like Susie Bates have backed Amelia Kerr for years saying, oh, she's going to be, you know, Susie Bates once said to me, oh, Amelia Kerr is going to be a better batter than me. Um, or she's going to she's going to break all the records that I've previously broken for New Zealand. Um, and I think over the last few years, people have, as you say, have been questioning that because she hasn't really hit a proper score in ODI since that amazing double century against Ireland a few years back. Um, and suddenly she's resurgent. Um, it does seem as if that that mental health break that she had, um, and this is kind of her first international series since that break, that that's actually done her the world of good and it somehow allowed her to reset to reset mentally um so i think it shows the the benefit of her having taken that step away um but yeah it's it's really exciting and it looks like she's going to be batting for them at number three in the world cup which is obviously a really crucial position awesome thanks a lot for your time raf and i'm sure we'll talk soon ben australia are massive favorites they've won something like 29 of their last 30 odis who do you think will join them in the semi-finals um i think england will um, and they probably go into it as second favourites. I think a, a couple of weeks ago, I'd say that India would be pretty sure to join them, but that series defeat to New Zealand has uh, mixed things up quite a lot, especially just that Amelia Kerr has come back in and kind of looked like the player that some people were saying that she always kind of could become. Like, I think that uh, uh, just, it's a very simple thing to say, but a, a gun batter at like st- starting to peak can change the complexion of a side and their chances. New Zealand have had have obviously got a, quite a storied history in women's cricket, but have had a bit of a low ebb for quite a long time. What's the stat, Joe, about how many series they've lost in a row before this one? Oh, I think it was seven, but I might be yeah, wrong on that. Their, their recent record over the last three years is basically awful, but they played 
almost exclusively England and Australia until they played India just now. But then they hadn't reached the semis of any of the last three tournaments, I think, across formats, despite being reasonably old tipped in all of those and had a few pretty poor forms that they almost got beaten by. Was it Bangladesh, the t- last T20 World Cup? Um, so, but so in a way, and like with you know with the men's team, you always get them described as dark horses and uh, they're almost the opposite, a team that gets reasonably tipped that never performs to their expectations, which is uh, the opposite of a dark horse is a, a white fern, maybe. Um, <laughs> uh, but but so I, I think that they, uh, they, they, they could do pretty well this time. So I would say... You had that one written down, didn't I you? I did, yeah. I actually sent it to you yesterday. Check, I had to check his line. <laughs> Um, and South Africa, we hesitated before saying I'm all in. Didn't really want to in the end. It uh, felt, felt better when I was thinking about it this morning. Um, uh, but so I, I think in South Africa are the other team. It's, 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 you'd expect to be four from those five, I guess. Um, and we'll talk about the others a bit more later on. Um, before I would have said South Africa and India. Uh, but I think the loss of Danae Van Niekerk is huge for that South Africa side, not just because of the player she is, but because of the leader she is. She really does galvanise that group together. Um, so I would, I guess I'd go with New Zealand and India right now, I guess. But it's hard to tell. Joe, Ben's nicked your moment of the week there. Um, Amelia Kerr completely dominating that series against mm. India. Yeah, I mean, she's, people probably remember her from 2018 when she was 17 years old and she hit 230 odd not out against Ireland and then took five wickets in the same game. Um, so that's still the highest score of women's ODIs. It's, she was the youngest player, male or female, to score a international double century in any format. So it was an amazing start, albeit against a sort of depleted Ireland side. Uh, and she's had a pretty solid career over the few years since, but hasn't really reached those heights. And then she's had quite a bit of time out of the game. She's had quite well-documented mental health struggles. There's a really good interview with uh, Stuff, the New Zealand website, which is worth reading if you're interested in her story at all. Um, where she, she talks about um, having a having a breakdown, really panic attacks, anxiety, rather than it being caused by cricket, it was actually the lack of cricket when she got injured and, and not having so many games, which led her with kind of took away her safe space, as she described it. So she's had quite a long time out of the game, um, and so when we came to put together our twenty two best women's cricketers in the world list, which we're going to come on to later, she doesn't make that list this is the problem with these lists that they become outdated very quickly she would if we were doing it now but her record didn't really demand selection um but this india series which new zealand won 4-1 uh she was outstanding yes i got the numbers there she's got 33 119 not out 67 68 not out 66 so averaging 118 for the series uh, also new zealand's joint highest wicket taker with her leggies um batting in a new role at number three which she hadn't done before so it suddenly feels like it's coming together at, at the right time which is which is really exciting for new zealand cricket uh just the game in general really because it's been one of those talents that has been so talked up for a while that it's great to see her kind of finally arriving or, or, or re-arriving um and she's only 21 as well still only like, 21 she debuted so early you kind of yeah. forget that uh, and i think for what it's worth i think Home advantage generally means a lot in world tournaments, kind of any sport really, but particularly cricket. Uh, so I would expect New Zealand to make the semis, particularly having had a bit of a rival against India. But I, I really fancy South Africa, even without Van Niekerk. I think, again, the list we did, you just realise what quali- they're a much better side than the one that England beat in the semi-finals in 2017. Uh, Laura Wolfart is is absolute class. Um, you've got Shabni Ismail, who's the fastest bowler in the game consistently. Uh, Lizelle Lee's the the 
the top, the gun opener in ODI cricket over the last couple of years. Uh, and then Marazan Cap, who wins most tournaments that she enters. So that's that's real pedigree they've got there. Um, so I, I would tip them to reach the final with Australia, with England in the semis, with with the Kiwis would be my pun. But it is it's, a, it's an open tournament, and these so like, India not to make the cut. I don't think so. I mean, they'd be very much. It's four, as Ben said, four of those five. Um, I just think with conditions out there and them having just got rolled over by New Zealand in those conditions, yeah, I think they might be the ones just to just to miss out. The other thing I'd say is that I don't, I don't think West Indies will come that close to making the semi-finals, but I think they could have a an impact on who does. Like I think They'll they could take good. what yeah. one or two off those off those five. Uh, like they had a series against Africa recently, which they drew 1-1, but really they should have won it. I think the first, the rain came when there was two overs left and they were well ahead in the game. I think one of the big things for them is that Deandra Dottin is in basically the form of her life at the moment. She's averaging like 40, uh, more than 45 since the start of 2019. And obviously Stephanie Taylor's been as good as she always has been. If you have two gun players, especially a player like Dottin who plays as she does, she, she could just have a day out against basically any attack in the world and can win a game from basically anywhere. So if if she does that against an Australia or an England, then that could cause a real shock. I don't think they will quite, they quite have the strength across their whole 11 to do it just enough to get into the semis, but they will be able to, they'll, they'll be uh, threatening some of those teams, I think. Phil, you, you questioned Joe not saying that India will qualify for the last four and you can almost put too much into a series just for a World Cup because they did beat, they're the only team to beat Australia in the last three years so and that wasn't that long ago yeah I guess the the conditions will be conventional New Zealand conditions which you look upstairs first of all you know and and it's going to swing if if the clouds come in but the pitches are generally going to be pretty pretty flat Uh, and I mean they they do have match winners this is why it's a really interesting tournament you know probably the West Indies as Ben says you know they're not going to win it but they're going to inconvenience the team because they have they have a couple of real explosive batters in there. And obviously with India as well, with Mandana in particular, um, there's a possibility that, 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 I mean, they can't go all the way, but, but they can certainly bother the, the, the back end of the, of the tournament. And, but look, I mean, yeah, all the questions end up coming up against that yellow juggernaut, don't they? And, and it's, it's basically impossible to make a case against Australia. The only thing is, it's, it's the, the eternal unpredictability of a, of a game on the day. And nobody gave India a sniff four years ago. Five years ago? Five years, five, five years. years ago. Five years ago. Nobody gave India a, a sniff. And, and Harman Preet played played the all-time great knock in female cricket. Um, with due respect to, you know, Heather a couple of weeks ago and all the rest of it. You know, that 170 not out, when she went from 100 to 170 in about 20 balls... Um, against the best side in the world, you know that's still on the table for somebody to have the game of their lives. Uh, but look, it's it's next to impossible to see any other side winning it. Joe, it's quite interesting that in a preview of the tournament, we're talking about the favourites so little, just because like it's just assumed they're going to get so far. Like, do you think that's like quite a strange mindset to be in as a team? Do you reckon they're affected by that? Nah, they're Australians, aren't they? <laughs> just absolute bulletproof when it comes to that stuff. Uh, no, I think. And you also, you can kind of run the risk of like, oh, that they, they win everything, they're too good, as though it's kind of boring, but then they're not a boring side. They've got some incredibly good players and their regeneration that we're seeing now is is slightly terrifying as well. Some of the players like Talia McGrath coming through, this new generation of quicks. Uh, the leggy Alana as well, yeah. the Mark King, superb. They've really got 
all bases covered. Whereas in the past, they might have, in a, in a generally weaker women's game, Lanning and Perry stood so far above everyone else that they would almost drag them through. Now you look from 1 to 11 or 1 to 15 and they're just a really, really good side. And and that's it. I mean, it would be, it's kind of unthinkable that they won't top top the group of this round robin. As Phil says, the only hope for anyone is that they have an off day on the final and yeah, and Shafali Verma is the new Harman Preet or, or Tammy Beaumont has a day out. That's that's going to be how it happens. But um yeah, I, I think it'd be foolish to bet, to bet against Australia based on their record. If you're if you're looking for reasons to sort of stay interested and assume it's not a foregone conclusion, like they they've gone some way to dispelling the like the thing that they're slightly more fallible when it comes to a big event, having won the last two senior World Cups. But there have still been hints of that. I mean, they got beaten by India in the opening game of that last tournament, and then before that, there were actually reasonably significant questions about that. You'd say like having been knocked out in that fashion in the 2017. World Cup semi-final and also in the 2016 World T20 final when they were going for I think they call it the four-peat the fourth in a row but then Hayley Matthews had a day out and that was a what won the game there so I mean I mean that's going back quite a long time it's a very different set of players now but you can say that they're maybe not quite as consistent when it comes to the crunch end of a May tournament as they are at all other times in cricket. I'll be watching closely to see how Nat Siver goes in that tournament because she's she's coming up to 30 30 now she's been the most naturally talented England uh, cricketer overall that we've seen certainly in the last seven or eight years uh, she is building a a legacy career and yet there is still that sense that there's so much more from her to come um, and it's only so many times that we can keep saying this is her time it's just around the corner it's five minutes away and then it doesn't quite work. It does, or rather, she doesn't. She doesn't confirm it, and there is still that sense, that slight diffidence around around that. She's a great character. She's really popular. Um, she's very approachable. She's very laid back. She's got a lovely way about her, and she's got all the talent in the game. But her record is still not quite in that top top bracket. Mm. And you saw it in the Australia series. You know how many times she adorned a game, but she didn't nail it. You know, she could have won that test match. You know, she played well in the second inning. She could have won that test match and it didn't quite work. She made 50-odd and then gave it away slightly limply, um, got caught on the boundary a couple of times in the in the white ball stuff. And there's still that sense that there's another another level for her. Um, she's key to it. Any, any Charles England have got, it comes down to her again. But she's an enigma. She's one of the enigmas mm. of, of English cricket. And yeah. they've got to find a way to unlock that brilliance. And it's not just her. It's quite interesting. If you look at England's batting ODI batting record over the last three years only Beaumont is actually like that good like she averages 50-51 in the last right. three years but big names like even Knight Siver average like mid 30s and then someone as talented as Amy Jones still averages about 25 Sophia Dunkley about the same as well Amy Jones is another frustration really you know she's she is so laid back that you sometimes wonder if she if she needs to graft a little bit more gnarliness Onto her demeanor in, in order to get over the line, you know, because again, as a ball striker, she's she's great. But Heather Knight basically record? said that to you when when you interviewed her diplomatically and slightly euphemistically. Mm. She said, "Look, we can't. We, we're not going to out sledge Australia. We're not going to out kind of challenge them physically and be in their face and confrontational. We'll have to pick our battles in our own way." And she said, and she singled Amy out said, Amy Jones is not going to be up in your face. She's going to have to find her own way to win her own battles, you know. And 
Uh, and yeah, she's another one. It's a slightly underperforming side. Danny, Danny Wyatt as well. You know, okay, she bats six or she opens and no one quite knows. And sometimes, I mean, she's got two basically 55 ball T20 hundreds and yet it's, she's not been able to fully convert into a, into a 50 over player. And you think that, that natural ability, what's happening here? You know, it could be a, it could be a coming out party for three or four of them this, this trip, or it could just be further confirmation of, of uh, there's something not quite clicking there for certain players. Yeah. And I don't know if, if the world cup has come a year too early, even though it's been delayed by a year or if, England haven't quite got to grips with figuring out how to judge performances in those new competitions they've got set up. But like it does, for, for all the talent that we've seen in English domestic cricket over the last couple of years, there hasn't been the change in the England batting order that you would expect. I mean, I know Raf talked about Lauren Winfield-Hill and about the fact that she hasn't got a 50 since before the last World Cup in all international cricket, which is a staggering statistic for a player who's playing in you know one of the top teams in the world. Uh, and it's not as if there have been absolutely no players pushing for that place, but she has somehow held on to it. And I don't know whether it's like a mentality change within the England team, whether it needs to become a bit less, a little bit less cosy maybe, or or not cosy exactly, because it's cosy for the players who are inside it and not for those who are... It's like it's quite hard to become embedded properly, but then once you are, you're in there for a long time and you have to, well, I mean... What 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 do you have to do to get to get dropped or completely sidelined? In some cases, it's hard to see. Um, my, my my sense speaking to Lisa Kite last summer was that she is really keen for that process to happen, but she thinks those younger players haven't really had enough exposure. And you know, it's it's basically one women's hundred so far. You, like, there's a temptation like just throw Alice Capsi in. Why, why wouldn't you have Capsi there, a sort of unknown quantity, rather than um, Lauren Winfield Hill, who has struggled for quite a long time now. But I think there is that fear. They just they haven't had the exposure in the way that the young Australians have been playing WBBL for for years now, um, and this, they probably have played it a bit safe with the squad. But I can I can kind of understand why. Just about I mean, yeah. I, I I do wonder at the end of it if if they have gone out in the semis or lost the final quite convincingly, whether they would think maybe we could have. Roll the dice a little bit more here. It was announced today that um, teams can have as many as nine players out with COVID and they can still participate. Um, that would leave nine players in the squad or the reserve list and that extra two spots can be filled by fielding coaches um, and yeah, and support staff. Um, Joe, what so you the, So the fielding and support staff, they would play as they could, they could bowl and they could bat. No, I think field. it's field. Okay. They can just field. <laughs> right. um, it's classic Sunday afternoon. So, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, extraordinary times and all of that. I suppose the, 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 the slightly more serious point, I guess, is that these are obviously extraordinary times, but New Zealand has obviously kept those restrictions in place for longer, which, you know, they're entitled to do. It's their own choice politically and socially and whatever. But you... It's good and, that you think that. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, when the tournament was given to them, it was given to them by rights and that made sense. It was a tournament they deserved to host as, as, as that status of, of cricketing country. But you wonder if going forward, if that might be a barrier to them being awarded tournaments in the future or if they should have looked for alternate venues now. Because the issue is, is that you can't fly in um, a replacement at any sort of notice, basically, because of the strict quarantine periods you have to take place. Whereas in England, you know, you could have someone if the tournament. Yeah, we don't care. It's, it's, COVID doesn't exist. Well, anymore, yeah, apparently. yeah, but 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 you know, and it's. I mean, you know, we're, we're not going to get into the whole thing with COVID now. But if you're looking just from the practicalities of of how can I, you host a tournament successfully, it is 
a barrier to doing that even if in lots of other ways it might be the best thing to do who mm. knows it's a chances of them doing it if it was a men's world cup uh, i really don't know but the no. ic ic no. yeah the ic make weird decisions about lots of things so you never know <laughs> that's true um, in their defense yeah <laughs> in their defense <laughs> the ic are useless everywhere ben very quickly we haven't mentioned pakistan or bangladesh um they're unlikely to make the final four but you have a couple of players to watch for both sides yeah, whenever I've seen Bangladesh play, uh, it's always been two players that have stood out. It's Jahanara Alam and Ramana Ahmed. Jahanara Alam's a, a very, uh, she's got a, a lovely action as a seam bowler. She's she's pretty brisk. She's tall as well. Uh, pretty accurate. She she has sometimes looked like kind of head and shoulders well, in a couple of ways just above her teammates uh, and like the star of that team. But they have risen a little bit to, to join her on that level. And Ramana Ahmed is almost uh, the opposite as a, a, a leggy. She's quite a lot shorter sort of skiddy but she's also she's been she's a real kind of fighter like she's kind of scrapped hard with with bat as well when it comes like kind of clutch situations she was key when Bangladesh kind of freakishly won that Asia Cup a few years ago beating India and has remained there's, there's been a couple of strange things with captaincy with her where she sort of had it and then lost it and a bit of backroom stuff going on but she's a I think that might almost speak to her personality as a real strong fighter in that dressing room I guess so they're they're two quite exciting players to watch and uh, Pakistan, it's, it's it's hard to choose because, you know, there's, there's no Sun Amir there anymore. Um, but one player who's reasonably obvious is Nida Dar, who's the, the vice captain, I think. Uh, and she is, again, another who, um, uh, as an all-rounder, her stats don't stand out. But when you look at, like, certain clutch situations, she has done pretty special things. And the other one I've picked out, there was actually a performance they put on together. So they beat... West Indies in an ODI series a few years ago now, but that was a real landmark win for them. I think the first time they beat them in an ODI series. And Sidra Amin, who has done basically nothing else across her career pretty much, but she averaged like 50 in that series. I think she got a couple of 50s, including like a 90-odd. In one of those games, I think they rescued Pakistan for four for nothing, basically. Um, uh, So those are two players who, if if you're looking for a a statement Pakistan result that maybe suggests they can possibly do something at this tournament, it would be that one. And those were two players who were pretty key in that, which is why I picked those two out. But yeah, mm. a- um, as we mentioned earlier on this show and on last week's show as well, the latest Wisden Cricket Monthly includes a list of the best 22 women's players in the world across all formats. Joe, do you want to talk us through that? Uh, yeah. So obviously we, we decided to do this in particular to, to mark the World Cup, but it's it's across all formats. It's not just ODIs. Um, the reality is there's not enough women's test cricket to do a, a list exclusively for that. So we've, we've rolled it all together, which was... Uh, made it slightly trickier to put the list together because obviously some players favour different formats. Um, but we asked lots of our mates, people around the game, who they thought. Um, big shout out in particular to Hypercourse, John Leather, on, on um, who gave us some really, really good insight. Um, and then we compiled, it was going to be a 20, but we couldn't fit everyone in, so we upped it to 22. And you know, it's 2022, so that, that vaguely fits. Two teams as well. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, and it was interesting putting it together because... You know, we've, we've waited an extra year for this World Cup. It's five years since the last, um, whilst the men's uh, cricket continued really without break through COVID. It was very much like the show must go on attitude. Women's cricket basically stopped. India didn't play a game for a whole year. Um, so this is, and lo- I mean, lots of players at that time were kind of considering, is that is their career in this game viable? And it's only really over the last year or so that, that women's cricket globally has started to pick up again. Um, and it's interesting coming back to it and now now looking at this list and how much the landscape has shifted since the last World Cup. We'll look at 
Anya Shrubsall, for instance, who was obviously the, the or pulled off the win at, at Lords five years ago. She doesn't make this list, is no longer guaranteed a spot in England's size. Uh, Matali Raj, the, the greatest ODI run scorer in, in history, uh, again, doesn't make this list. Some have argued she actually holds India's side back these days. Um, and You wouldn't say that though, Joe, would I you? I wouldn't say that. So not publicly. <laughs> and uh, Annalise Perry does make the list, but only just, which you know would be unthinkable previously. And in ODIs, this is when we come back to the kind of cross-format list here. ODI, she's comfortably in this list, but she doesn't make Australia's T20 side at the moment. So we had to balance those things out. Um, and it's an interesting mix of nationalities as well. Australia lead the way as expected, but I think we've got six or even seven countries represented in the 22. Um, yeah, so it's an interesting list to compile. I hope, I hope people enjoy it. So the magazine's out now. Get it on wisdom.com. Absolutely. Um, some big news from India this week. They've announced their test squad for their series against Sri Lanka. Uh, Rohit Sharma has been named as their captain. That doesn't necessarily mean he's their permanent captain because Kale Rahul is out of the series with an injury. Um, and after what has seemed like an eternity, India have finally dropped Ajinkya Rahane and Cheteshwar Pajara. Ishant Sharma has also not made the squad. A few new faces. Uh, there's KS Bharat, who uh, is an uncapped keeper. Surab Kumar, who is a spinner. Axar Patel is injured. And Priyank Panchal, who is an uncapped batter. Bennett's an end of an era with no Rahane and Pajara. They've been there for so long. Are you surprised they dumped both of them at the same time? Well, I don't really like saying... Uh... I said this might happen a few weeks ago, but I did say this might happen a few weeks ago when we were talking just before or maybe right when the South Africa series had started that the form of those two meant that India were in danger of a landmark series defeat that would then force kind of a mass transition when they had the option of moving one on or only picking one and giving like, you know, dropping one and maybe recall them at another point in time, which would allow them to transition a bit more. Uh, and that's now happened. They now, now do have, they're going to go into the series, at least, you know, Sri Lanka at home, they should win it pretty comfortably, but they are going to go with it. And also they have, through injury and rest and stuff, they have given opportunities to a few other players. So they're not in that bad a position to move on from them. But yeah, it's a massive end of an era. In a way, Ishan is the more unfortunate of them in that those two people have been sort of calling for their heads for a while and their form has kind of not really justified their selection for a little bit. It, Ishan is just a kind of a victim of uh, of kind of the pace, not cartel, what's another word, the, 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 the pace revolution in India that he kind of helped lead the way for, you know, if you think that he was like a joke bowler for a period of time in India, you know, where there'd be memes about how he's celebrated with his like crazy long hair and that sort of thing. Um, and he had the, one of the worst bowling averages of all time, one point in his career, and has improved to become actually world class uh, and has, you know, uh, he he was able to shepherd in that new era to be the senior man in that attack, to bowl the hard overs that allowed these strike bowlers to succeed. But now it's been so successful that there are just better bowlers than him, which we've seen because of the rest and rotation, that bowling attack, that he doesn't get into India's first choice attack. Maybe he's even just a couple of spots down, possibly. He was um, poor in England last summer, wasn't he? He yeah. looked like he was really struggling. And it was Kohli kept going to him for the for the big moments, opening sessions, and he just he looked well off the pace. I don't know. He'd had an injury leading into the series, hadn't he? So perhaps that's slightly unfair to judge on that alone. But he, he didn't look like the bowler he had a year or two previously. Exactly. And, and given how strong India's bowling attack is, that it, like especially when you're the age that Ishan is, like a, a couple of displays like that can really prove... Uh, damaging to your chances but but he has had uh, a brilliant career and should go down as one of India's best ever fast bowlers I suppose yeah just on Pajara and Rahane Pajara's averaged 27 over the last three years and Rahane 24 in his last 19 tests so it was a 
extended period of really quite bad form. And on, um, oh, sorry, on the captaincy thing, can I say I kind of felt that Rohit Sharma wasn't the right guy to maybe take over in the other two formats, possibly, and that Carol had more acclaim there. But actually, I kind of think he should be the full time test captain I don't know if he should be doing all three jobs that is a question I suppose but Kara Hall is the other option but he it's strange because of how good he's been in the last 12 months or so and because of all the brilliant performances you can remember from him but his test record isn't actually that good he's not that far away from actually being in under quite a lot of pressure again he averaged, and he averaged like 35 after 40 odd test matches and if he then goes in a poor run which can easily happen when you take on the captaincy of a pretty volatile in a pretty volatile environment uh then all of a sudden, he's under pressure for his place. Not had just a really for his good job. 2021, though. No, no, he did have a brilliant 2021, but that hasn't translated his record into being like it because because of just where that that raw figure of the average is. Yeah, he has a, a poor series, a poor couple of series, and all of a sudden it's down in the low 30s, and you're like, hang on, should this guy even be in the team? And that is not a great place to be. So. I saw um just that saw Cheat and Sharma, the selectors, describing uh, Rohit as the most important cricketer in Indian cricket. Which I thought, you know, when Kohli sees that, that is don't rub it in. Yeah, it, well, I, it felt pointed. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I don't know the context of it, but that that yeah, the, yeah, the line was that he was number yeah. one, which you know is would not have been thought of kind of only a year ago. I that guess Kohli he, could be usurped in that way. Yeah, I guess he literally he is though. Like right now, he is a captain in all three formats. So it'd be weird to say he's not the most important person. But in you don't cricket. Have to say it at all. That's I think true. given that is absolutely what Kohli has been, and 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 still, it's not you know. Indian cricket is more than just the cricket itself. It's it's the it's the kind of icons around the game, and Kohli still leads the way in in that regard. I would say. Also, from a cricketing point of view, I'd argue it's Bumrah who's their most important player uh, across formats. He's the one who, when he came in in that Staffa series, he has changed him from a pretty good Test side who were still struggling to win series away from home to one that is like the dominant team in the world today. I just wanted to ask: Do we know who's batting three now? Pajara's gone, and who would you have? From, if you put KRL back into that setup as well, you have Sharma, Agarwal, Shubman Gill, and Raul, who are all opening batsmen. So there's four of them who are all opening bats. One of them will end up batting at first drop. Who? who so, yeah, total finger in the air so speculation. Who, what are we saying? Based here? off how they played in 2021, Rahul and Sharma for me have to open, as well as Agarwal's done. Agarwal's got lots of runs as well. He, though, has, right? he was now. Largely in, in the year, wasn't he? Largely in home conditions, ago. though, is the. Okay. I, I, okay. I would probably still bat Agawal three. Right. Um, and there are a lot of people in India feel that Vihari has really earned his chance. He's played in difficult away series and he's got a brilliant first class. Rock record. solid, isn't he? He is. And I'd kind of be between Vihari and Agawal at three, but I'd, I'd have just like. But I have to have Shubman Gill in there. Well, he's just too beautiful. You he, can't... But he was just—he he looks so good against Australia. I know he didn't get like the standout headline score at any point, but he was so good against Australia. So you're Australia. picking them all? Uh, as, well, no. As well as Kohli and I was, was, was going to say Shubman at three, which is probably unfair on Agarwal, given I know he's played significant knocks. But um, if this is the start of looking ahead, and I know Agarwal's not old, but Shubman is obviously the future, this feels like the right time to slot him in at first drop between those two that, as you say, that opening pair shouldn't be split up. That that looked they looked great in England last year and have both got good records. But we, uh, but but Shreyas Iyer presumably comes in at five because he made the hundred on debut. So he'd come in the Rahane slot. Yeah, I was, I was, I was going to have Kit Gill at five in my, in my team. Right, but mm. I guess 
the, the, the tricky thing with the Aya... God, they're all good, aren't they? With, with, <laughs> with, with, with the, the Aya versus Vahari thing at number five, which I think is the way it will end up being, even if I can see the merits of Gil there, is that although Vahari didn't play that series at home, India was sort of saying like, no, we, we've done that so he can play in this A tour against Africa in South Africa so that he can be ready if needs be in South Africa and Tresar is getting a debut in in India. It's, it's, so it's all a bit strange to work out what the pecking order is in the selectors' minds. So it might well be that Vihari actually, because he was really, really good on that A tour, uh, that he actually does get a go. I, th- I think they will go with Aya, but because um, Vihari just gets in the habit of being left out, basically. And is pretty sure to, to think about. I mean, he's obviously going to come back in at some stage. He's too he's too good not to. I mean, there's guys like Surikumar Yadav. There's what Sa- Safra's Khan averages seventy in first class cricket, does he? Yeah, and and it's and it's like a hundred in his last a thousand first class runs. Got a triple hundred and a two seven five in his last few games. Yeah, good players. Um, yeah. Uh, elsewhere, New Zealand ended up thumping South Africa in the opening test of that series. Uh, huge win. South Africa were bowled out for 95 and 111. New Zealand scored 495. Going to be um, a tight series though, Joe. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm telling you, that second test match, <laughs> nip and tuck. Large. Nip and tuck, as I said. Um, Henry Nichols scored 100. Uh, he now averages 50 in home tests, which is very good. Dean Elgar was frank about Aidan Markram's deterioration in form, he said. I've had a lot of tough conversations with him and I've told him you need to score runs for us. He understands the situation he is in at the moment. His position is a little bit vulnerable. We need guys firing. You can't carry a few spots. It's okay to carry one guy if he's out of form. I've had a lot of good conversations with Aiden over the last few weeks. I need him to return the favour. Mark, by the way, averages less than 10 in his last 10 innings. Yeah, that's me. Like, I knew he wasn't in form, but I hadn't mm, realised it had got quite that, that, bad. that bad for such yeah. a good player as well. Um, Luke asks... At this point in the World Test Championship cycle, who do you think the two finalists will be? Yeah, it's an interesting one because part of the sort of the argument for South Africa getting to the final was based on their good record against New Zealand, which I guess we now can't count on in the same way, which but that does open the door, I think, for a, a potentially a Pakistan-India final, which would be obviously what everyone wants to see. Uh, and I think it, it is kind of shaping up that way. I mean, it's obviously, so Pakistan have more difficult home series but against teams who might be fallible in those conditions so that series against Australia which is coming up which Wisnot Comstar Hashim is is going out to uh, that will be uh, fascinating to watch and could play a really big part and actually maybe it could be the winner of that one meets India in the final possibly. Matthew asks thoughts on the 100 after the retention specifically with teams being able to retain so many of their squad Um, there are clear winners and losers of the draft for the first edition and the Southern Brave squad looks so strong that it could dominate for years if they can keep retaining as many players as they have done. I think with a new tournament, with new teams, you just want to create some kind of team identity. Otherwise, I think people could lose interest um, and you want we want people to attach to, to teams. Um, I think what I found most interesting is given the state of the test side at the moment, um, the status of the centrally contracted players will be quite interesting because it's hard to predict who will be in the test side come the middle of the summer. Uh, like Crawley could conceivably be dropped and he'd be an amazing player at London Spirit. Who knows what happened with Bearstow and Pope at Welsh Fire. Um, Southern Brave could lose their captain. Yeah. Vince could potentially... Uh, but, uh, Butler could play the whole thing for Manchester. Sam Curran, same for Oval. Dan Milan for the Rockets and Archer. We, they've already said that he's not going to play any test match this summer so if he regains fitness he could be available for the whole thing for Southern Brave and all of that stuff is up in the air so. and there are overseas players to come in as well I think that there are so many variables I wouldn't have any concern about one side dominating this for years to come we very rarely see that in T20 leagues around the world even when 
they've been established for years and years. I mean, Mumbai Indians, I guess, have, have probably come closest, but even even they, they don't they don't walk it each year, and they obviously didn't do especially well last year at all. Um, so no, I, I think identity. I agree completely. Identity is really important. At this point that the fans who came along last year can turn up and see broadly the same side. I think is really important. And maybe it's partly a British sporting psyche thing versus like an American one. But I, I quite like success, kind of begetting success and meaning something for future seasons. Like I like if you win uh, one year, then you should be at, like building dynasties is quite a cool thing in sport. And actually giving teams a chance to do that rather than just like putting everyone back in the pile or letting teams to train one or two, I think is quite a good thing. I mean, as, as long as it doesn't get too dominant, but I don't think in the hundred... Uh, you know, like literally the most unpredictable format going apart from T10, I guess, that that is going to be yeah, the case. I agree. The only thing I'd be wary of is having, if you had more than one London spirit last year, who was clearly the worst side, mm-hmm. I think that just makes for a slightly worse competition. But I mean, it was still really competitive at the top. It wasn't as if like Southern Brave were the best team by absolutely miles. Ireland have qualified for the T20 World Cup. Ben, you're up in arms against the qualification system. Do you want to explain? No, no, I'm, I'm not up in okay. arms. I'm, I, I, I don't hate it. I think I can see the reasons for it, but it is interesting how they've changed it. So you, we, you've been to T20 World Cup qualifiers in the past where it's been one quite long, big tournament with lots of teams in it. And it's very hard to understand how you actually qualify. Yeah, it's simpler now, but what they've done is they basically split the qualifier in two. So you have two eight-team qualifying events from which two teams go to the final. So in each team event you have two groups of four so it's short and sharp which is i think it's much easier for the ic from a logistics point of view and from you know, paying for hotel and that sort of thing which actually for at that level the the budget can get pretty high um and it's better as well for some of the teams because if you have a lot of these players who are part-time um and have to take time off work to play these tournaments it's much easier to do that for a short sharp week long thing than for a you know a marathon three or four week thing that's quite easy it should mean that teams can get their first strength teams out but uh, what it does mean is that you have these like massive do or die fixtures for, you know, a thing that can actually determine the fate of a team for quite a long period of time afterwards in terms of funding, in terms of what you get for going to a big event. So Ireland did manage to qualify, but they uh, and but any team will have a semi-final, basically, and the winner of that will qualify for the T20 World Cup. And that is, you know, we've seen teams have days out uh, and Ireland could, you know, breeze through be, be a brilliant or any team could be a brilliant t20 team at the level just below but have a poor game against a level that is still quite close and then not be at the tournament which could end up i mean you know you want it to be as meritocratic as possible but you always have to deal with these things the other thing i thought was interesting from it was was that the philippines were really bad uh which is obviously not noteworthy in itself but what was interesting is that the other seven teams were so close together and it is actually that you can forget how closely matched all those teams are kind of thing like you can kind of think that you know, because just because of the format that you have, you know, such close games and you have like Bahrain beating UAE or whatever you ha- end up having. But actually the fact that there was a team kind of like almost like a, a control experiment as like a, a much poorer team who teams were just racking up hundreds against uh, and getting bowled up for 36 and that sort of thing actually shows that the depth in that level of cricket is big enough to support an expanded T20 World Cup, which is what cricket is working towards. Um, I think. And quickly tell us about what happened in the first Bangladesh-Afghanistan ODI. Yeah, amazing game. Uh, so Afghanistan set Bangladesh, what, 2-16 to win, I think. Uh, and it looked like the story would be the announcement of this uh, of this new 21-year-old fast bowler. I think you saw at the Un-19 World Cup, he took four quick wickets. Um, this is for Afghanistan. So Bangladesh, what, 45-6, chasing 216. 
but then a partnership between two other young cricketers, Afif Hussain and Mahedi Hassan Miraz, the latter of whom England fans will know plenty about from that test series a few years ago. They just batted through to the close, which I guess can happen with that sort of chase. You know that one partner can get you pretty close. Uh, but just more impressive performances from young Bangladeshi cricketers. And this is, so for FIFA saying this basically is his second performance of note. Um, I'm sure you remember the uh, 24 ball 50 he got against Zimbabwe in 2018. <laughs> uh, he was really good at the 2018 on World Cup. I think he made four fifties in six games, including 71 in a win against England. And again, Mahidi, this isn't completely out of the blue. He's become more of an all-rounder. He got a test century against West Indies last year, I think, but he did average 15 in ODIs before this innings. So it does count as a bit of a shock. Phil, have you got a moment of the week? Yeah, sort of. It was this morning. Um, I I did did a couple of interviews with two old folk heroes of uh, Essex and County Cricket, Ray East, and before him, Kenny McEwen, um, very different characters, but were both part of that great Essex side of the late 70s into the early 80s. Ray East was the, you know, the sort of famed comedian, eccentric, clownish figure. And Kenny McEwen was one of these brilliant South African um, imports who were obviously unable to play international cricket at the time, but lit up county cricket during that era alongside Barry Richards and, you know, um, and Mike Proctor and various other ones. And and so it was a it was a nice experience to talk to the both of them. Um, nice, good men, you know, reams and reams of stories of of a life well led and a time when the game was only really nominally professional. Everybody was paid a pittance, really. And at Essex, I don't know if this applied at other clubs, probably not, but at Essex, everybody got paid the same. If you were if you were capped, you got paid the same amount whether you're the captain, whether you're Graham Gooch, or whether you are, you know, uh, a second, third seamer, if you've got capped, you all got paid the same. There was 12 professional players. Uh, you put the nets up by yourself. There was no coach. Um, you were given a few quid for, for your fish and chips of an evening, but that was the extent of the expenses that you had. And that was that was the world. That was the world back then, especially with a club like Essex that hadn't won anything until 1979 and so didn't have that much money at all kicking around and yeah it was just interesting you know and you know unshakably nostalgic of course and all the rest of it and it was lovely to hear their stories about this kind of brotherhood of you know the golden age of county cricket if you like he told a story of Gooch opening against Marshall in an Essex Hampshire game and these like beautiful stories and yet it was weird i have to say it was weird because i'd woken up to the news overnight of what was what's happening in eastern europe and it was on my tv in my front room where i was doing these interviews on mute and these images were flooding through and yet we're talking about you know the game at bournemouth in 1979 and and it was a weird slightly unsettling dichotomy you know i don't know i just found it slightly odd anyway and it's not always easy to shake the sense that what we do here is just one great big nonsense, but it's, it felt especially prevalent this morning. And and it, it, it became quite a poignant experience. I can't really explain. There, there is no connection there uh, on any sort of intellectual level, but it was just a weird visceral thing for me. Um, and yeah, it, it kind of became quite a poignant morning, really. And then I end up talking to you lot. My, the same stuff. My moment of the week is very different. It was uh, Shaheen Afridi's 39 off 20 in the PSL. Similar um, kind of vibe, yeah. So Shaheen and... 
Shaheen had only ever scored, hit four sixes in his entire T20 career, and then batting at eight for law, smashed 39 of 20, including 23 of the last over to force a super over. Um, and, and six of the last ball, too. Six of the last ball, and he did uh, his, his celebration that he does for when he, t- when he takes a wicket, and no doubt that's the first time he's ever done it with a bat. Um, and they didn't send him out to bat well. in the super over, did they? No, they didn't, and yeah. they lost the super over yeah, as well. They only scored five, five yeah. yeah. Um, Harry Brook also scored 100 in the last few days as well. I saw um, a bit of that. Yeah, he's quite quite the player to watch, good, isn't, isn't he? he? Yeah. The Bangladesh Premier League final was amazing. Camilla Victorians won by a solitary run. Sunil Narine was a star. He scored 57 off 23 and then took two for 15 off his four overs. Um, Chris That's Gip- Mo inside, is it? Pardon? Mo inside? Yeah. So he's um, done the IPL, BPL double. And he's done the blast with Worcestershire as well in the past. Yeah. Um, Are there any more worlds for him to conquer? Eh? <laughs> Chris Gale had a bit of a stinker. He scored 33 off 31 in the run chase for Fortune Barishal, who were cruising. They needed 18 off 18, but couldn't do it. Ben, I spoke to Ben Duckett yesterday. You overheard the full conversation that we're about to play. Um, he's quite an interesting player. He's been very good across all formats since he joined Notts without really being in the conversation with England seriously. Um, yeah, what do you, what do you make of what he's about to say. <laughs> um, uh, well, yeah, I, th- I think there's lots that's, that was interesting in that conversation. Um, and I do... <laughs> Full stop. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I do think it must be a, a strange position he's in. The, the, the most interesting thing to me that he said was when he says that uh, when he sees other players get called up to play for, he didn't mention any names, but he sees some players get called up and he looks at their records and he sorts of thinks, hmm, that's not as good as mine. It's specifically talking about test cricket. And we don't really think of Ben Duckett as a test prospect at all, really. I mean, he, he, go, he goes and plays in these T20 leagues. He uh, has a very good T20 record and a list A record. And he's done good things for England in uh, white ball cricket, which he didn't do in his first in the test side. But we did a piece on wisdom.com, which I think you mentioned in the chat with him um, a few uh, well, a month or so ago now. Uh, looking at what England's test team would be if it was purely based on first-class averages. And he didn't quite make it into it, but he was one of a few players who average around that 40 mark. And, the and others, everyone else has basically played for England in yeah, the last or, year. Or really in the conversation. So I think for that sort of like five, six slot, and he bats at three as well, which is notable when you're talking about that Joe Root conversation earlier. So it was what, like Vince, Milan, Lawrence, Pope is a bit higher, and Duckett basically are the guys who average around that 40 mark with a substantial amount of games but Duckett doesn't you know Vince gets you know reams and reams of column inches and people pushing his case and uh and we talk about him on the podcast and we don't talk about Duckett at all but and he and that must be a strange place to be for him but it also means that because his record is at that level if he uh ends up having a good start to the season or a good you know period or even does something extraordinary in, in white ball cricket that makes people take notice again of him that we could be having a Duckett conversation in a few months time possibly Mm, well, here is my conversation with Duckett. Last week, Mark Butcher was saying that he didn't think that people appreciated how difficult it is being an overseas player in a franchise league. So you're coming in as an overseas, the expectation that comes with that, and then performing conditions that aren't your home conditions. Do, do you reckon that's that's fair? Have you found being an overseas player in these leagues? Yeah, 100%. You know, you're picked as one of very few to go out there and almost be one of the better more experienced players in the team so you know first of all there's that pressure and, and secondly as you said the, the conditions for example the difference in conditions in Australia and Pakistan are so different you know Pakistan's keeps a little bit lower 
um, skids on. Australia's big bounce, huge boundaries. Um, so yeah, like you, you have to adapt. And, you know, I think that's why certainly all the young English players we've got at the minute playing in those competitions, I think for, I think that's probably why our white ball cricket in England is so strong. Um, but I, yeah, I also think it's so good to, you know, for guys to be doing that. So when they do get an opportunity to play for England in different countries that, you know, they might have not played international cricket, but they've played against the world's best in those different conditions. Mm. Um, but yeah, like Australia, the, the bounce and, and the size of the grounds, it, it's so different to what you'll have in England. Um, you know, over there, they, they almost bowl 20 overs straight of length. Um, you know, at Trent Bridge or wherever in England, that you, you whack that out of the ground. Um, so so that, that was so different. And yeah, being an overseas, you kind of have to adapt to that straight away um, um, and then find a way to, to score runs out there and, and try and try and win games for your team. Um, you, you mentioned earlier that you, you travelled home early from the PSL. Um, for people who don't really know the details, what is bubble life like at the moment? How strict is it? What, what kind of things, what kind of normal things aren't you allowed to do? Um, yeah, I think obviously different places are very different. Um, first of all, on the on the bubble life kind of thing, I think from an from an outsider's perspective, I think people can look at it and it almost be like, I can't really believe that he's not enjoying himself out there. You know, I I, I remember speaking to Joe Clark last winter and he said, look, it's it's tough, like really struggling, looking forward to coming home, and I I just didn't get I didn't get it. I was like, you're staying in nice hotels playing playing the game you love you know what can be so bad about that and obviously I've witnessed that this year and you know I think lots of people do and I think the toughest thing is it's it, it can be it can be very lonely I think you know especially as an overseas player you're you know I, I made some some mates in, in the Brisbane team but you it can you know when when you're at home in Brisbane most of the time, most of the guys are at home you're staying in like an apartment you spend most of your time sitting in in bed you know watching Netflix, blah, blah, blah. And I think, you know, adding on to that, you need to switch off from cricket. Um, and, you know, that's why a lot of people say the subconscious the toughest, sorry, place to go because you're, you're sat in your hotel room a lot and you're overthinking the game. And for example, if you're, if you're not scoring runs, your head's going crazy in that hotel room and you're thinking like, I need to change this and need to change that. Whereas, you know, if you're, for example, in the summer, you're in England, you, you get away, you see mates, family, you go and play golf, you, you clear your mind, you go back to the game the next day and you, and you crack on and, and you start again. So, yeah, I think for me, it was, a, it, it was a tough stint. And I think Australia PSL is basically three months flat out, you know, straight there. Um, and it, yeah, it just got to me in the end. I, I was, you know, I, I ended up not not playing and we spoke about how tough franchise cricket is i i got 47 in my second last innings and you know we had jay roy and vincey coming aside and, and that just shows you know how tough it is to to play in those sort of things and i just remember i was i was in my room in pakistan and just thought i've got a long summer ahead of me here you know i need a few weeks to go and refresh um a little bit of time away from the game because i thought you know, I would have come back, I think, yesterday or something. I'd have been in the tent at, with knots next week, pre-season, suddenly into the summer. And I think I'd have I'd have been so burnt out before before I'd even faced a ball of the county season. So, um, you know, that, that has perks of, of playing in these competitions around the world. But it's it's, it's definitely not as luxurious, maybe, as, as it seems from the outside. Obviously, cricketers have short careers. They want to show what they, what they can do. They want to make money while they can. 
But is it quite a difficult decision to agree to go to franchise tournaments at the moment? I mean, like life in the UK now is as normal as it has been for two years and players, as you describe, overseas at least, are very restricted in what they're allowed to do. Was that was that something that you were aware of when you were out there? And yeah, how, how, how difficult a decision was it before you went out? Um, well, for me personally, this winter was, it couldn't have been an easy decision. I've, I've probably had a frustrating few years and I, I know... But I think a lot of people know what I can do. And I've, I've had a few quiet winters seeing my mates go and play in these competitions. And yeah, as I say, I haven't really had much on. So for me, this winter was about, you know, getting out there, showing what I can do. Um, so, you know, I, I think for the guys that, uh, you know, I've only had a little, I've had one winter of it. I think I have a lot of sympathy for those guys, you know, especially the England squad who have been doing it for the last two to three years, flat out. You know, the sacrifices you make, not seeing your family and your friends. Um, so I can certainly have a, you know, be a bit more relatable, sorry, um, for guys pulling out of competitions now. And I think it is very important for maybe people and fans on the outside to probably understand that. Um, Cause it's not really, you know, it's not selfish decisions. It is very tough to, to be doing that and, and playing, playing 24, you know, sorry, 12 months of the year. Um, so yeah, but for me, for me this year, I, I was desperate to get out there and obviously going to Australia and, and performing fairly well. I, I think I'd have taken it at the start, but always set my my standards higher than that. Um, and you know, potentially if I'd have not done very well in Australia, I might have stuck it out in Pakistan. But you know, luckily I had that and did well. And, and fingers crossed, I can go back there in the future uh, and Pakistan. You know, maybe when maybe when Australia is not a bubble for two months and, you know, there's a bit more freedom and a bit more enjoyable um, away from the cricket. Um, moving on to, to Red Bull cricket, you're not in a unique position necessarily, but it is fairly rare that in that you, you get these franchise opportunities, you're a value player in the 100, but you're also one of the most consistent Red Bull run scorers in the country. Since you've played more white ball cricket, playing, um, you know, the summer is slightly more dominated white ball cricket, I guess, than it used to be. Has, has that changed how you approach Red Bull cricket at all? Um, for me, not really. Um, I always say that I find it fairly easy going through the gears from T20 to one day cricket to four day cricket, p- partly because, yeah, my, my, the, my core of my game doesn't really change. You know, I'm not, I'd use someone like Joe Clark, an example where he's also a phenomenal rebel cricketer and he's strike, his strike rate in rebel cricket, I think maybe late forties. The strike rate in T20 cricket over the last few years has been about 165. You know, the difference in his game is so massive. Um, whereas mine is, you know, it's it's very similar. You know, I, I even play the spinners in Red Bull cricket similar to how I do in T20 cricket. Um, so so I, I don't find that too much of a, of a change. Obviously, there are times in Red Bull cricket where you've got to bat for a longer period of time and, and dig in a bit more. Um but yeah, for me personally, um, yeah, and, and rebel cricket, you know, whilst we're on it, I, I see myself, I know that I get opportunities like other people to play in these franchise competitions, but um, that certainly doesn't take away, you know, what I want to do in rebel cricket. And um, I, I see this summer as a huge summer for that, for, for probably a lot of guys, you know, similar sort of bracket to me, um, obviously just with, with the test side at the minute. Um but, you know, one thing I've always said over the last few years is just uh, for me in Red Bull cricket, I don't want to like put too much pressure on myself. Mm. Um, I feel like if I'm enjoying 
enjoying the game, enjoying, you know, not getting too frustrated when I get out, staying fairly level-headed. Um, that's when I'm at my best in Rebel cricket. And, yeah, I don't want to think think about too much about what's going on. But, you know, I'm also not, you know, silly enough to know that, you know, in the next couple of years, if people put scores on the board and score a lot of runs in Rebel cricket, there, there will be spots available. Mm. Um, we did a thing on wisdom.com recently on which English batters have the highest um, county championship batting averages across their whole career. And your name came up pretty high on that list. And in the last three years, um, specifically, you averaged pretty much exactly 40, batting at three a lot of the time. Um, is there anything you've worked on particular in the last three years or still looking to work on? Because th- that, there aren't that many top order batters with those kind of numbers in that period of time. Um, well, yes, yeah, to be honest. Obviously, I moved, you know, probably around that timing time frame, I moved to knots. Um, and purely the reason for it is I just didn't feel like my game was getting any better at North Hans. You know, I loved the club. I loved playing there. We didn't really have many coaches at the time. So that was why I moved to, you know, to be under Pete Moores. Um, and I spoke earlier about having a couple of quiet winters at home. They were actually probably the best winters for my game. You know, I, I worked hours and hours and hours on my batting. I kind of changed my whole technique, really, to help me in Red Bull cricket, um, to make my leg side game stronger. So, you know, allow me to leave the ball more outside the off stump and let the bowlers bowl to me. Um, I did I did a lot of work with Ambofa. Um so, so yeah, like I put in so many hours working and working, working. I won't give too much away, obviously, but I think everyone now in county cricket, you know, everyone knows everyone. Um, but yeah, it, it was great to just have a bit of time to focus on myself um, and just, you know, bat for hours, um, hours upon end in the indoor school learning my game. Um, you know, I certainly don't want to have to do that again in the next 10 years of my career. I'd like to be out playing cricket, but I feel like those two years... Um, certainly got my Red Bull cricket, you know, back to a bit of consistency. Do you feel harshly judged on by your very short test career? I mean, you were, what, 21? You only played in Asia. You opened the batting in two test matches, then you batted four against one of the best off spinners of all time. You've got those numbers. There aren't that many guys in England who are getting those numbers in the top three. Do you sometimes feel that you're kind of unfairly pigeonholed as someone who had a longer stint at the side than, than people realise? Um... Oh, it's a good question. Uh, you know, I'd be lying if I didn't look at potentially players' records when they get picked. And I think a lot of players in the last few years have been significantly lower numbers than what I've produced over my career. Um, so in that sense, potentially. But then again, as I said, I've, I've sort of learned, I've grown up. And maybe the reason why those numbers are consistent and good is because I've actually not let anything affects me on the outside. Um, so, yeah, it's a good, I, I, I'd say no. Um, for me, really now, and over the last sort of 12 to 18 months, I've just really enjoyed my move to Knotts and Trent Bridge and playing there and, you know, winning, winning games of cricket there. I think, you know, if I'm honest, last year felt the best my Rebel game has been. And I think I averaged 37 scored 700 runs but we only batted once in half of those games and I don't know how much is looked into by people like that I think people just look at numbers and they don't necessarily look at okay actually 
most of the games at Trembridge were over on the morning of day three. Um, I don't know how much that's looked into it. And, you know, the, so, so for example, but I think maybe three years ago, our batting unit, you know, as a collective, when we couldn't win a game, we were too scared to play on pitches like this. And I think for the likes of even Haas last year, Slater, Clarkey, me, I think we've just allowed, we've agreed that we're happy to average 35 for knots as long as we win, as long as we win games. Um, and I don't think we'd, especially a young group of players who aspire to play for England, I don't think they'd agree that, agree to play on green seamers so we could win games if we were so bothered about averaging 45. Um, but yeah, for me, it's more about really trying to enjoy Red Bull cricket again. And last year was amazing. We won so many games and obviously we're in Div 2 this year. We've, in my eyes, got potentially one of the best Red Bull sides in the country. So, you know, there might be... There might be some games there where you only get about one, so try and cash in where I can. And that's really interesting. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about 50-over cricket because you first played for England in 50-over cricket. You got um, you did really well in that Bangladesh series. Um, you got that double hundred for the Lions way back when as well. You know, that, that in theory could be your best route into England side, but you don't get to play it ever. Do you think of that that at all? Is that like quite a weird position to be in now that the hundred and the Royal London Cup uh, take place at exactly the same time? Um, well, I think I'm fortunate that I'm, you know, I'm batting number three for Nottinghamshire, and I'm I was batting number three in the hundred last year for Welsh Fire. So I think if I was, you know, I'm, there are definitely I won't name them, but there are players who are very good fifty over cricketers who don't necessarily get into those franchise teams. So I'd say if I was one of them, I'd be frustrated about it. But, you know, as I say, luckily, or well, luck or not, I'm I'm playing and, you know, I'm in one of the best white ball sides in the country and I'm playing in the 100. Um, so I see English cricket picking their 50 over players from that. And I feel like the way that the England game, the way that the England team, sorry, play, is a different level you know it's not it's not scoring 90 off 115 in a 50, in a 50 over game um so for someone like me who my strike rate is not necessarily you know ridiculous well then the list day stuff it was all right um i feel like the 100 t20 blast is only going to help that and improve me mm. um but yeah it's a bit of a shame that i potentially might not play another 50 over game again you know if if this happens and um but on the other hand, I'm completely for the 100. So I'd, I'd much rather play in that competition and sacrifice the, the Royal London Cup. Mm. And finally, are you, are you the kind of person who sets goals for yourself at the start of the year? And, and if so, what what would a good 2022 look like for Ben Duckett? Um, no, I don't. I don't. Just purely because, I mean, I had that ridiculous year when I was younger. If I If I'm honest with myself, I don't know where the boundary is or, you know, so I, you know, as I say, we in, we at Trembridge produce green pitches to, to, to get wins. We're in Div 2 this year. If things went well, I might not bat, you know, twice every game, little things like that. So I think in Red Bull cricket, I, you know, I, I pride myself on hundreds and obviously only got one last year. Um, so, you know, I, I, for me, I'd like to score, you know, three, four hundreds in a year. That's, that's something that I'd like to do. And I, I feel like if I do that, then I'll probably win us a few of those games. Um, and then in the, in the blast and the, the hundred, it's, it's more team stuff for me. I, I want to, 
I want to score runs to put us in winning positions. Um, I don't like to set numbers or, or, or too much. So in the white ball stuff, it's, you know, I, I like, I'd be disappointed if I'm averaging below 30, 35 in the blast. You know, that's one thing I'll set my sort of standards on. Um, I think the hundred's still new. I, you know, I, I, I don't really have a clue what's good or bad there, if I'm honest. I, I obviously love second leading run scorer, but I hardly scored a run in my last four or five games. So I was gutted with that. Like I, I felt like I should have scored a lot more runs. Um, so, yeah, white ball cricket, enjoying it, trying to trying to score runs for my team. And, and red ball stuff, obviously, it's for us to get out of Div 2 this year and, and yeah, personally score three or four hundreds. Fantastic. Well, cheers for your time, Ben, and enjoy your time off. No worries. Thank you very much, mate. Joe, there's a new Wisdom Cricket Monthly coming out this week, coming out today, in fact. Um, what is in it? For our uh, YouTube viewers, there's the latest cover. Um so yeah, we've obviously mentioned the the cover story of the women's list. Um, I would say our columnists are in particularly good punchy form this month. Uh, we've got uh, Lawrence Booth on on the decision to drop Broad and Anderson. Um, we've got Andrew Miller who who uh, questions quite strongly why Tom Harrison is is still in the gig. Actually, maybe I'll just read out one of the, the pull quote we've got here. Uh, when the game is failing by pretty much every set of criteria ever designed to agitate public opinion, be it matters of morals, money, or pure sporting endeavour, it shouldn't come as a surprise when Harrison's broad brush platitudes get given a resounding brush off. Tell us what you really think, Miller. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that kind of sets the tone for the thing, and, and it continues much in the same vein. So that that was that. That's yeah, punchy. We've got um, Adam Collins on Justin Langer, uh, who basically says that he. Although he won the T20 World Cup and and the Ashes, that you know the time had come, um, and that was the right call. Um, and in amongst the, the the kind of some of the, we've had to cover some pretty difficult questions over the last few months, and and you know we need to do that as a magazine. It's the right thing to do, but we're also aware that you know you need to keep it light at times as well. So we we came up with our our list. Was it 39 in the end, Phil, for no no particular reason? Or was there a reason that I've forgotten? Just just ran out, didn't we? We do, couldn't come up with a 40th. <laughs> no. <laughs> we cobbled together 39 reasons think, why cricket's all right. But yeah, think, no, up well, to 40, no chance. Reasons why we love the game, um, which are a kind of, it's a kind of eclectic mix of, of on-field stuff, off-field stuff, uh, which was, you know, quite, quite fun put, to put together. A little bit of a, a pick-me-up after some of the more, the uh, less savoury stuff that we've had to cover in in recent months. Um, Did any of mine make it in there in the end? Yours were all quite weird. Um, <laughs> I think a couple managed to stay in. Good. I might even see on the page Phil has just opened there some helicoptering bales. Did they make it in? Um, was yours slip fielders moving with the shot? Uh, yeah, I do that like that. That was one of yours, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, I, I wrote 200 words on that. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's that kind of level. But but we, we needed it, man. We needed it after a few, a few somber months, has to be said. Mm. So, so yeah, forgive us, but... We try to have a bit of fun. Uh, uh, we've also got the Ben Folks interview that I think we've mentioned on the podcast. Yeah, we have. Must have done, yeah. There's a great line. Uh, I love, I love Mamma Mia. Here we go again. The singing of Fernando on the balcony. My goodness, I get shivers. Ben Stokes, 2022. <laughs> ben Folks. <laughs> ben Folks. Uh, John Stern looks at the history of England West Indies. Sorry, West Indies England test matches, test series, especially out there in the Caribbean. Does a really good number on the kind of cultural and social and sporting heritage of that particular fixture, obviously ahead of what's to come. Uh, Joe writes relatedly on why um, England have picked the squad that they have. Uh, Root and it, sorry, 
uh, Braun and Anderson drift like these sort of spectral ghostly figures through the magazine at various various spots, various points. Uh, Jim Wallace writes a load of nonsense about his uh, his time in southern Italy. Um, beautifully written, but total nonsense. Uh, Taha Hashim, who we should say, by the way, if we didn't mention it last week, uh, nominated as Young Sports Journalist of, of the Year at the Sports Journalism Awards coming up. Not just cricket. Sports, he won't win, but he, you know he's he's been amazing. Oh, I think he might. I, I, I'd vote for him. Yeah, yeah I'd, I'd vote for him as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Unanimous. Yeah. And anyway, he's written a lovely thing um, uh, on one's first hundred, making that one's maiden hundred. Test hundred, uh, right? Test hundred. Yeah. He speaks to Gower. Speaks to Claire Taylor. Speaks to Nick Compton uh, and one or two others. Asma Mood. Asma Mood. The, the dream top four. Um, just about, you know, about the significance of it, the emotional attachment one has, you know, to, to that achievement and all the rest of it. So that's nice. It's just brilliant. I have to say it's just consistently brilliant. Um, <laughs> what I don't a review know why. from the, uh, the editor. Yeah, I don't know why, <laughs> why it doesn't sell more copies than the Bible, frankly. Can I, can I ask you about an editorial decision made on the front cover? I was actually going to ask this as well, I think. Um, Only if you're going to be complimentary. You, you've gone for... Uh, Branderson rather than Broderson. Right, look at Harmon because I wrote Broderson and he changed it. <laughs> well, it's basically, it's, it's out there as both um, and also it fitted with the headline for Lawrence Booth's column uh, is, the, is the main reason. Oh uh, yeah, Brand Branderson, yeah. yeah okay. Going off Branderson. Yeah? Got it, I'm, 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 I'm happy it? with that, I'm happy with that. Fine. Okay. Um, as, as, always, long as, as long as it's in, in, in the cause of a good pun. <laughs> <laughs> I think I coined Branderson. Broderson. Branderson, years ago. I, I started using it and I'd never seen anyone else use it, but probably nobody noticed. So I'd probably coined it just in my own head. But now it turns out that no one used Branderson anyway, yeah. apart from us. This is the revival of Branderson. Yeah. Um, you coined the phrase no one uses. It's great. One <laughs> no, thing, that, that really is nailing it though. There, yeah, there is absolutely. one thing that you, you I genuinely think you have coined that people are starting to use and that's calling the Oval the people's ground. So I remember yeah, you, you said this is on because me. Because there there's nothing there's nothing online that suggests it's ever been referred to that other than by you. Yeah. And other people do call it that now. Maybe. I'll claim it. Have you I, I well I was gonna put it down to Adam Collins, who calls it the people's ground all the time, but maybe that's come from you. It's it's answer. Has he confirmed that, Collins? He hasn't, but you I think you've been saying it since <laughs> before. Collins was in England. Since before time. So, yeah. <laughs> I am older than him. So there you go. Anyway, you can get Wisden Cricket Monthly as always from wisden.com forward slash shop. Um, well done for getting to the end of the show. Cheers, Phil. Cheers, Joe. Cheers, Cheers, Ben. If you enjoyed the podcast, feel free to leave us a review either on the podcast app or on Spotify. We'll be back next week where, as I said earlier, we will be joined by Carlos Braswell. Cheers. Podcast Network.